0: This is The Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Hans-Joachim Both, who is a UBS Foundation Professor of Economics at the University of Zurich. Today, we're going to talk about his paper, Killer Incentives, Rivalry Performance and Risk-Taking Among German Fighter Pilots, 1939-1945, joined with Philipp Ager, Leo Burstein, and Lukas Leuchtand and which is forthcoming at the Review of Economic Studies. Joachim, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Jordi. It's good to be here.
0: Joachim, what is the question that this paper tries to answer?
1: So what we're trying to answer is how much does rivalry motivate people, even if the risks involved are extreme? So people have looked at peer effects, you know, if I'm surrounded by capable people, to become more capable myself. That's not a new notion or idea. But the idea that there's something like personal rivalry, that if you do well, and I know you well, this motivates It's me to try the utmost, that's new, and this is something that in this setting we can actually analyze.
0: So you, in your answer, you talk about a couple of concepts that sometimes are examined as different literatures, which would be uh, the relative standing concerns literature, and on the other hand, the peer effects. I I like that you are referring to this as kind of part of a continuum because the frontier between where one starts and where the other ends, at least along some type of mechanisms, is not super clear. With respect to the relative standing concerns, there has been some work on the fact that we care about our relative position, especially like a relative to people that we consider our peers, what would be, let's say, the the contribution with respect to that literature in examining this type of personal rivalry in the context of the German fighter pilots?
1: Yeah, so as you say, you know, this is not completely virgin soil territory, so other people have looked at relative standing concerns, right? So there's rich work by, for example, amongst many Uh, Ricardo perez And what people typically show is that if your rank declines, people are not happy, right? So, you know, it's revealed to you that you're not the highest paid person in the office, people become unhappy. That's very intuitive. And sometimes this leads to destructive behavior. So when your neighbor wins the lottery, some people go out on a consumption binge and do crazy stuff. So this is the kind of thing that I think we know. What we add to the literature in this paper, I think, is two things. One is that we sort of show that the relative standing itself isn't the whole story. It matters whether I know you or not. We see this in our fighter pilots. So they, they react if somebody else gets a very important award. But if they know that person, if they used to fly with them, if they spend a lot of time together, that reaction is much greater. And the same is true if they come from the same region of Germany. So the further apart these pilots are born, the less they react to somebody else getting a big gong, a big form of recognition. And that hasn't been done in this literature. That's contribution one. Contribution two is that we look at high risk activities. So many of these outcomes in the Relative standing concern literature are very interesting, but you know, an employee is unhappy. You could say, so what? right? How important is that? And of course, we care about employee happiness, but this might be a very fleeting thing. We don't know really how much this unhappiness matters for the effort they produce and so forth, whereas these people are putting their lives on the line every day. This is an extremely high cost, high risk setting. And they seem to f- care about this enough to really change their risk
0: Wonderful. I'll go back to a couple of points that you have mentioned probably later on. But in in order for it to be clear what exactly we're talking about, can you tell us in a little bit of detail what is the setting in which the study takes place? We said it's German fighter pilots, but what do they do? How do they relate to each other and so on?
1: Exactly. So, you know, why would you actually look at fighter pilots, right? <laughs> to answer this question. For me, there's like two reasons why I was interested in this, and they're very personal. So, my maternal grandfather was actually an engineer for the German Air Force and worked at the aircraft testing site, the main one uh, in Rechlin. And he actually knew many of these guys, many of the famous aces, because they'd come and test new models and stuff like that. He also knew Goering. So, this was sort of always part of my intellectual actual upbringing that I was fascinated with what these people do. There's something also inherently fascinating, and I guess it's a sort of every boy's fascination with the topic thing about fighter pilots, because just to fly an aircraft, I I learned to fly when I was in Oxford, uh, when I flew a glider aircraft, but just the idea that you can actually sort of do this seemingly impossible thing of not crashing a machine uh, in 30 seconds flat is kind of surprising. And then if you have to do aerobatics in it, and on top of that, not just aerobatics, but against somebody else and get into a position where you can not just fly but shoot and then survive. It is basically a completely implausible, impossible thing, if you think about it. And then you have to ask yourself, what motivates these people to do this crazy thing? And the interesting thing is that the vast majority of these pilots never do anything, right? They don't score. So the performance is extremely unevenly distributed. A handful of pilots account for the vast majority of aerial victories because they're so much better than everybody else. And keeping them motivated is essential for the success of this enterprise. So that's how we got into this. We looked for a setting in which there was just one person taking decisions that are risky and a directly measurable outcome, right? That's the ideal setting to think about this high stakes relative status, concern, rivalry business. And fighter pilots are ideal for that because the fighter pilot sits in a single-engined aircraft and there's only one person doing the job. Once battle is joined, once you have a dogfight going, nobody tells you what to do. It's just you deciding whether you try to... Go for the kill or go and hide in a cloud. Uh, go to the deck, meaning drop down to the lowest altitude, fly home. Or you try to sort of out-turn, out-maneuver, bounce the other guy and go home with an extra enemy emblem painted on your tail. So that's why we went for this particular setting, right? The outcomes are extremely well documented. <clears throat> People file claims saying, I have an aerial victory. That's assessed in great detail by the bureaucracy. It's often backed up with gun camera footage. Everybody has to name a witness. They record the grid coordinates where the enemy aircraft crashed and so forth. So these are about as high, as hard an outcome as you can imagine um, in any setting and directly linked to individual performance and incentives. Could you
0: mention also, given that a lot of the uh, studies is going to be on the effect of the performance of the peer on the behavior of a specific pilot? what is appear here if they work individually you know
1: yeah that's right but <clears throat> i mean all air forces are organized in a similar way the smallest unit is what's known as a squadron Squadrons are units of six to 10, 11 aircraft, and they often fly together, they often train together. These are the basic units that every Air Force sort of moves around as they assign tasks. And they often form closely knit networks, they stay together for months and years. And we define a peer as someone who used to fly in the same squadron with you in the past. Right, so we want to explain behavior at one moment in time. What we then say is, is there somebody that you used to fly with who has just been recognized by a particular form of distinction that the military handed out, and I'm going to talk about in a second, and he's no longer in the same squadron. So why is that important? Well, because there's all sorts of things that basically change the tempo, if you will, of combat, right? So if there's a lot of air activity from the enemy, it's the summer flying hours along, and so over, the rate of victories typically goes up. So you don't want the sort of aggregate shock that everybody experiences in your group to create seeming spillovers or effects on others. So you take somebody who you used to fly with, and now they're thousands of miles away or hundreds of miles away, completely different conditions, but they do something amazing. They get recognized for the hundredth victory, 500, 350th victory, whatever. And then this particular form of recognition that we look at is a mention in the daily bulletin of the German armed forces. Forces. So typically, it's going to give you a couple of paragraphs about how the war is going in the east and how the war in the Atlantic is going. And sometimes they will actually mention someone's name and say, you know, on this day, Geordie has got his hundredth aerial victory against, against, against the Russian air force. Right? That is broadcast almost immediately to all German units. It's printed in the newspapers. It appears in news reels and so forth. So it's as much of a widely known shock, as you can imagine. And that's what we use to sort of highlight the effect of a change in relative standing, right? I used to be just as good as Geordie. Now he's, you know, having all these amazing papers. So now I really try to harder to go and score at the top to to, to sort of think that through.
0: Just to be clear, the focus on the former peers is mainly due to econometric um, reasons as opposed to conceptual reasons, like... If we were somehow able to get uh, rid of the correlated shocks issue that you mentioned, potentially the reflection problem, if exactly. we were able to do this with the current peers, we will expect to find the same effect or, or a similar type of effect.
1: Exactly. So we only do this because of what's known as the reflection problem, right? So if we're in the same group and then we're subject to joint shocks, many things will look as if I react to what you do, but we're just there's just a third force driving outcomes for the two of us. Um, so that's why we use this. Particular setting, we think it'll be the same. It should work the same if we're still in the same unit. If you naively and you know, not well identified, not cleanly, just estimated as if this didn't matter, you find exactly the same thing. But in the same unit, react to the recognition of their colleague, even if they're still in the same unit, right?
0: I have uh, here a couple of questions about what we take from this setting into other settings. The first one is the question about whose estimate are we capturing, you know, by looking at how a former peers react and all. This is for the following reason you are are focusing here on pilots that have some victories you say that performance is very skewed so there that 80 percent, i think you said of pilots do not have a single victory so you are going to focus only on some who are peers of high achieving pilots and therefore who are pretty good themselves right i would expect that if we have a distribution of parameters about how much people care about their relative standing. There will be a strong correlation between being pretty good yourself and caring about ready standing which means that we're identifying here the effect out of those who care a lot about ready standing rather than the average person if I understood it well this is not a problem in your setting because these are the people that the Luftwaffe anyway cared about right (laughs) like you don't want to motivate the average person you want to motivate the highest performers is that is that the way to think about this
1: yeah I think this is exactly right so I think we make no apologies right I mean pilots the themselves are incredibly strongly selected. Every Air Force, including the United States one, goes for people who have, you know, they put them through intelligence tests and they have to be, you know, several standard deviations above the average. Then they wash out 80% of them in flight training. So the the group that remains is already incredibly selected. And then off that, as you say, most people in our data never score. That's not quite right because in order to be in our data set, you have to have at least one victory. But we know that there's many pilots that we don't have any records of because they're not part of this documentation on Era victories, so they don't get a second one. And then within that group, of course, the people that do most of the reacting that we see seem to be the ones that must have gotten to the point of having substantial numbers of victories because they care about the kind of recognition that goes with this. Now, one interesting thing that is in our results is that the pilots who are not quite as good, they do react as well. But when they try to react, they mainly get themselves killed. Their probability of death goes up substantially. Their probability of victory does not. So this tells you just how much people care about this rivalry slash relative standing thing. For the really good pilots, the death rates don't really do much, but they do get onto the job. They just do more things and we have a small subset of data that we hope to develop more. But. We couldn't get much more out of it. Flight logs, which instead of just looking at the rate of victory on a daily, weekly, monthly level, tells you about the missions they fly. And one of the things we see is that the frequency of missions that they take goes up. So this is almost perfectly at the discretion of the pilot. Nobody can force you to fly four missions a day instead of three. And this seems to be one of the mechanisms through which this concern about relative standing maps into higher victory rates. The good pilots just go out there and do more for more hours, for more missions, for more risk when a peer has been recognized.
0: The second question that I have with respect to extrapolation has to do about whether this setting is uh, similar to other settings than in the absence of a world war we care about. You mentioned earlier that companies have studied this, employees are unhappy, we don't know you know these are like relative low stake settings. You uh, will show in this paper that even in incredibly high stake settings, these things still matter. I like life or their decisions. but maybe if if I'm trying to advise somebody in the business world about whether to try to exploit this relative standing more or less and all this, maybe the results from low stake settings. Are perhaps of more interest to them.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to tell you that everything you want to know for practical management advice has been extracted from the fighting records of German Luftwaffe pilots between 39 and 45. You know, that would clearly be absurd. Now, Having said that, what are the characteristics of these guys? They're young, male, exclusively testosterone driven, and they care about how they do compared to others. I think this is actually a kind of interesting and relevant group. So many papers in this literature look at pretty unskilled people. It's not just that the stakes are low, but they actually look at unskilled people. These are super highly skilled people, very, very good at one thing. And what motivates them, I think, is kind of relevant because we have a lot of settings in which many of these characteristics of employees are similar. So every time you go to an investment bank, you have people who take risks. They're often male, but no longer exclusively so. They're testosterone driven. There's risk to themselves, but also clearly to others. We care what they do and how they do it and whether they blow up the firm or just do a great job lining theirs and their employer's pockets. There is an element of this in every consultancy, in every law firm, sometimes for doctors, wherever the stakes are high, and there's a lot of sort of competition and value in being the first and risks that are not just your own, but also of externalities and others. I think the setting is very similar. And I'm not going to tell you that this is a sort of ultra important thing for HR policy to think through, but many companies try to sort of leverage some of this, right? By having these forms of recognition and those there's industry awards for, you know, the best government bond issuance team, know euro money and stuff like that. So we have payoff structures and recognition structures that have some similarity with this. And the reason why we didn't look at this, and I wouldn't want to because I find it boring, but I guess there's more teams partly that just map into getting some of this recognition. If I could get the same kind of data for, say, you know, hedge fund traders and stuff, I'd love to do it. Uh, I would find that interesting. Um, but you know, we just did this because the data seemed cool. Um, we, as an excuse, I think, as a fig leaf, uh, why it's fun to do it. I think the similarity with other high-skilled, high-stakes professions was good enough for us.
0: Going now to like the the core of the paper, you have uh, two empirical strategies. One initial one, which is just like a. A Cox Hazard model and then like a panel data set, standard type of OLS model. And then something that you call a course and exact matching. Focusing on the first one, could you tell us what, how do you organize your data set? What variables do you have? What regression you run? What are the baseline results?
1: Yeah, so basically, it's just these are just different diffs, right? So you basically have groups of pilots, and then just make it very simple. Think about you and me, okay? So you and I both have peers in grad school, and in one month, a former peer of mine from grad school gets an econometrica, and then you want to see do I now put extra effort into getting a top five too, and I compare you and my performance over time, and if I in the month in which my former peer was recognized. By getting a big gong publication, I do more stuff and I submit more papers. Then you have a treatment effect, okay? And then three months later, you know, a peer of yours gets an AER, and then you sort of get going. That's what we do when we look at two outcomes: victories, uh, victory claims. If you recognize victory claims, if you're precise, and the rate of exit from the sample means the pilot never comes back, never flies another mission. Uh, which in the subset of pilots for which we have additional data maps pretty precisely into death uh, with a high likelihood or at least being wounded in action and uh, just being incapacitated and not coming back. So we have risk taking, we have performance in this diff and diff setting. And what's the problem? As you alluded to earlier, life gets a little hard with a diff and diff because the assumption is always that you have comparable comparison groups, right? So the idea would be that your performance is like mine, and I can just sort of look across the two of us and then the timing of when our peer get re- gets recognized as some random element in it. Imagine that you're a 10 times better scholar than I am, then comparing our two re- reactions over time isn't a terribly compelling idea. Because maybe there isn't enough I can do to ever catch up with you, right? So what you want to do is to stratify and find comparison groups of highly similar people. So that's what we do with this course and exact matching, where the idea is that I just take a bunch of parameters that define how good you are as a pilot or as a scholar. And that gives me a better sense of really comparing apples with apples and oranges with oranges. And that means I throw away some of the data because there's maybe just nobody who really looks like you and... In terms of sort of vintage experience, victories, etc. But what remains are highly comparable people. And then we confirm the same results in the subset of the data.
0: If there had been a rule that says that if you have 10 victories on a day, you will make it into the bulletin, you will want to compare pilots who have 10 victories and other pilots that have 9 victories, maybe. And then study their peers, correct? Now, here, I guess that the important thing, that, therefore, is what do you think was the rule that was translating the performance of these pilots into the appearance, into the bulletin?
1: Yeah, great question. We wondered about this a lot, right? So there's some recognition where there's rules of thumb, no hard and fast rule, but there's a rule of thumb. For example, there's a medal called the Knight's Cross, and you typically got that if you had 50 aerial victories. With the bulletin, we try to predict when you get it. And what helps is to have a round number of victories and multiples of 50. But overall, the prediction power, even if you go to machine learning models and stuff with highly nonlinear prediction mechanisms, the prediction performance is incredibly low. So there's something else that's driving whether you get recognized or not, and we don't know what it is, which is kind of good news because we think of it as as good as random. So there will be one pilot who gets to 100 And he gets written up in the bulletin. And there's somebody else who also gets to 100. But then there's something happening on the Eastern Front. And the bulletin writes about that instead. And he just doesn't get the goal. Okay. So that's a little bit how we think about it.
0: I'm going to mention here the five variables that you do to uh, to create this matching. Monthly victory rate. Number of victories. Number of victories in the previous three months. Front where the pilot operated. Number of mentioned pilots in the same month. So you look at other pilots that look very similar along these five dimensions to the pilots that were mentioned. And the idea is, well, probably just randomness, you know, that made the mentioned pilots appear and these ones uh, not appear. The critical thing there, uh, which you do, of course, is to do the balancing tests between your placebo pilots and the uh, mentioned pilots. But the other thing that I was wondering about is the the pilots that you actually study are not the ones mentioned, but you study the behavior of the peers, right? So therefore, the peers of the placebo pilots should also look similar to the peers of the mentioned pilots. Is that what you
1: find? They look Oddly similar, So, you know, everything here is super skewed, right? So <laughs> with our normal statistical tests, if something is super skewed, things can look off quite easily if there's just one guy who's a little bit different. So if you sort of trim the sample and you go for some winsorizing and stuff like that, they look pretty similar overall, right? But the, the unit of treatment is the recognition of the pilot and then the effect is on the peer. So we were actually kind of happy that the CEM matching and the balancing look good and then How you think about the exact comparison of the people who receive the treatment um, struck as maybe uh, more of a second order thing.
0: So difference in differences, in practice, some of the regressions that you run are what you call like event study or leads and lags. What do you find there, for instance, with respect to the victory rate in comparing the treated and the control pilots.
1: Yeah, so the the victory rate goes up, and especially so for the good pilots, as you would expect, because they just have more scope to improve their score. The good thing is that nothing happens pre-treatment, right? That's the essential thing in all sort of event studies. There's no pre-trend. It's not as if these guys are already getting better prior to their peer being recognized. The performance jumps in the month of treatment in the month after, and then it sort of goes down and it's almost uh, becomes statistically indistinguishable. Very quickly. So it looks like a the timing is right, but it's not something that changes the trajectory of your performance. So it's not something that sort of bugs you forever. Uh, It seems to be a fairly hot-blooded thing where you know it's either the same month or the following month where most of the change in performance happens.
0: One thing, so you mentioned earlier that these are like diffs and diffs models. You know, you can Create the treatment group in one way or in another, uh, the control group in one way or in another, you know, perhaps a little bit better, perhaps in a way that is not as sophisticated. What I was wondering was how can you do a different death diff model when the exit or the death, you know, rate is on the left hand side? Because at some point, you know, in a different diff model, you typically put like a, you know, a treatment dummy or a, or an individual fixed effect dummy. But here the left hand side variable is going to take value one just once. No? So so how yeah. is this possible to do technically? Yeah, yeah,
1: that's a that's a great question. And this actually sort of well, we took we took a shortcut when we first circulated the paper and we just said, well, of course, you know, prior to treatment, nothing can happen. So let's just forget about that and we'll just show you how things in treatment month uh zero, one, two, three look. And then, you know, sometimes referees are actually good for something. The referees sort of said, well, that's not very clean, you know, why don't you just basically create ghost pilots, people who, you know, could have died in the comparison group, just perform this analysis in a slightly different way, where you basically create these groups of ghost pilots that did die, and you keep them in the sample and look at their death rates. They have peers who get or do not get recognized too. So you can actually do that, but it makes it changes the flavor of the exercise slightly.
0: Okay, so this is with respect to the baseline effects. We have just mentioned victory rate goes up, uh, exit rate also goes up. The next regressions are more like essentially heterogeneity regressions to see what type of pilots or what type of pairs are associated with the strongest effect. Uh, The first heterogeneity is with respect to the proximity between the birthplaces. Why do you study that and what do you find?
1: Yeah. I mean, people outside Germany may not be so familiar with this, but it sort of still matters a good deal where you're from. So people from, say, Bavaria think of themselves as very different from people from the north of Germany. And we just thought, you know, one of the ways in which I might care more or less is depending on whether you come from the same place or the same region, you know, there's local regional accents and stuff like that. We just tried this and we actually found strikingly substantial results where, you know, the extent to which I react is much greater if I'm born basically in the same place. And then from a certain distance onwards, a couple of hundred kilometers, it basically goes towards zero.
0: So what you were mentioning earlier that you might be checking out the potential econometrics of other people that went to graduate school with you. Let's say that in my case, I may compare myself more to a Spanish than to a Japanese. Yeah. Um, right? That would be, a Japanese is not so much of a reference group for me. Okay, good. The second uh, thing I want to talk about is the the heterogeneity with respect to the initial quality of the, of the, of the pilot. There are better pilots and worse pilots on average. You, you mentioned earlier, you already anticipated that the effects are different for different variables depending on the initial underlying quality of the pilot can you repeat that
1: yeah so the good pilots mostly just score more death rates uh, don't change that much the 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 pilots are not so great they don't perform that much more because they can't but they do get themselves killed to a much greater extent, right? So they seem to be right at the at the limit of the trade off between risk and return, uh, and then this extra recognition seems to push them over the edge where they actually do things that weren't very good for them exposed.
0: I have to say that I was a little bit surprised by this finding because I would have expected, for the same reason that that the, m- my reference group might depend on the matching nationality between myself and and the peer. I would have expected that the pilots that are not so good do not consider themselves peers of these mentioned pilots, you know, like going back to, you know, to, to the example of, of graduate school. If a semoglue glue happened to be in my, in my year, and he gets the, his uh, 75th econometrica. That's barely going to affect me, right? Because he's not really my reference group, whereas somebody that broadly speaking is like of a similar quality will have a stronger effect. So I was surprised that these comparisons are not so much within like a relatively narrow intervals of quality, but can extend, you know, to, to wider intervals.
1: Yeah, I'm sort of with you and stratifying this based on performance, I think would make the whole thing very messy conceptually, but we haven't done it. But I, my sense would also be that the sort of, you know, if I compare myself with one of my classmates from Nuffield, Steve Redding, you know, <laughs> that's just like comparing yourself with Toronto Shimogu. Uh, it doesn't really rock my boat. I know that he's going to get more QJs than I ever will. But the, the modal person here who gets a mention in the bulletin is very good, but they're not just... The sort of Erich Hartmanns and Hans Joachim Marseille's of the Luftwaffe, but these are sometimes people who just you know have three victories on a day and then they get to a hundred. There's the, the hundred is an amazing number, but there are hundreds of other pilots who've done the same. Right, so they are way above average, but they're not part of the sort of 0.01 percent of super super superstars.
0: So the last part of the paper is the one in which you explore the mechanisms uh, through which. Uh, these pilots might be reacting to the mention of a peer. You you anticipated them already earlier, the willingness to take more risks, the willingness to exert more effort. I was a little bit surprised that you found it necessary to provide evidence uh, for the risk-taking mechanism because my impression was that If there is a shock, which is the recognition of a peer, and you see that the likelihood of extreme outcomes increases, here, one helpful way to think about this is that there are three possible outcomes. I fly and I die. That's a negative, extreme negative outcome. I fly and I achieve a lot of victories, extreme positive outcome. And there is a middle outcome, which is I fly or or just time passes and I don't die. <laughs> right, that will be an outcome in the middle. You, you find that both extreme outcomes are more likely. So to me, that seems prima facie evidence of risk-taking.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't have to be. So, you know, this took me a while to wrap my head around. This is where I think the referees were also helpful. Imagine that we're taking a test, okay? And you and I have gone to a school, or we used to hang out with a group of buddies we're taking risks, just shooting from the hip. And if you don't know the answer, you're just going to write something. That was the accepted norm. Then it's going to be very likely that one of us has a perfect score because we took a lot of risks. We didn't know anything, but you know, in a group of 50 guys, one of us got lucky. And there's going to be quite a few people who have really terrible grades because they were just shooting from the hip and did terrible stuff. right? So now imagine that instead of talking about a group of peers in school having a habit, we learn a particular style of combat. and It's very risky. And if it works, you have a good payoff to it. You get lots of victories, you get recognized, you might even shake hands with the Fuhrer. But it's also possible that it gets you killed. Okay? So there's style, there's all sorts of strange types of maneuver and way in which you try to get ahead of the other guy has high skill, high risk patterns that are very different depending on which strategy you pursue. Maybe that's a month in which the strategy on average backfires, but it pays off for one person. Then you're going to have this problem that, that is potentially unobservable driving forces in the background. And that's why you want to, at the individual level, see that people do things that mean that they take more risks, right? And that's, for example, the number of missions that I fly.
0: Tell me what is the evidence that you use in order to explore this?
1: So the the evidence is we actually, so it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, it's a rave new world in terms of available data. We actually collected log books, right? So every pilot logs every flight that they take the same way. I don't know if you have a diving certificate, but if you have a diving certificate, you're meant to log every dive you do. Pilots do the same and then Every time they claim a victory, they write down all the details of where they did this and so forth. But a subgroup of people took, you know, thousands of euros to convince enthusiasts to part with their copies of precious documents. We collected for a hand, small, very small handful, subgroup of people, these flight logs. And then we know, you know, the hour when they take off, the hour when they come back, we can look at how many hours they fly, how many missions they fly in a day. And we see that that number goes up if a former peer is recognized. And since we know that sometimes many of these missions are discretionary, so if they tell you to fly, you fly, but the extensive, intensive margin here going from two missions to three to four to five, that has to be voluntary, partly because it's such a physically demanding job. Nobody who wants to quit the cockpit will be told to go back because it's clearly pointless. You're going to get the guy killed. A lot of flights have nothing to do with combat, right? There's training missions, there's transfer missions, and so forth. And they're, you know, just like in all good military organizations, they expect you to volunteer for the right stuff, because then you're motivated. And the fact that these people fly more combat missions per day and in a month, in which a peer got recognized, tells you that they're basically willing to take more risk.
0: This is good. Risk taking goes up. I want to go back to almost the way that you started, which is that you said at the very beginning that you want to, or you are exploring how personal rivalry between these like high skilled uh, individuals matters. And like, I I do believe that this is the case here that, you know, it is not a, it is not in doubt, but I, I was wondering whether we might be plausibly think of this in a slightly different way. So so imagine that we thought of the Nazi regime to which these you know, people belong and everything as a religion. Now, the mention of the peer in the bulletin, you can interpret this as evidence of a sacrifice or an offering. You know, this great deed that my co-religionist that I know so well as my, being the focus pilot uh, has done. This could potentially trigger a similar reaction because the former peer represents an example to emulate. Not necessarily because there is rivalry, but instead due to like admiration or leading by example that the peer generates. A leading example that in principle could be an event as well in that I may be led more than somebody that I know well or that comes from the same area as me and so on. Now, I don't think that probably this... Two psychological mechanisms are probably so different from each other, but it would be a sl- maybe a slightly different way to think about and about this. And and in the context of these p- pilots, personal rivalry does sound to me like a more plausible mechanism. But in principle, in slightly different setting, that could also be an interpretation.
1: You know, we cannot look inside the heads of people in the past. We can consult documents that uh, they have left behind sometimes. Exposed sometimes at the time, and we can try to sort of think about their behavior. Let me give you two examples why we think rivalry is a more likely thing. So, there's a fighter pilot by the name of Nocker who keeps a diary and then publishes it as a book afterwards. And, you know, he has no reason to to distort this particular angle. He's transferred from the Eastern Front to the West in 1942, I think, and the squadron in which he used to serve has some of the highest scorers of the war, people who become famous. And in his diary slash memoirs, he keeps writing how you know he how much this upsets him that he's no longer with the other guys who are all covering themselves in glory, and he has this boring job you know chasing after the occasional British bomber. That's the first thing. the The other story that I always like to mention, which is really truly amazing, is that in the summer of nineteen forty, after the victory over France, the Germans are getting ready to invade Britain, and in order to do that, they have to gain Daylight Supremacy in the Air, what's known as the Battle of Britain. And at the time, there's two high-performing German aces, Mulders and Gallant. And then the head of the Luftwaffe wants to confer with Galland, who is a higher-ranking officer, about how the air war is going. And he tells him to go to Berlin to have a discussion. And Galland says, no, I'm not going to go because, you know, Milders and I are closely tied in terms of victory score. One of us is going to be the first one to have 100 victories. I'm not going to go to Berlin and talk about some bureaucratic stuff while I'm in the middle of a competition. And Goering who was a fighter ace in World War One himself, immediately understands and says okay, no problem, you come and I will ground Mölders for the same number of days that you are out of the competition and he has to come to Berlin and we're going to go stag hunting so that there's an even killing field, if you will. You both have the same chance to sort of be the best, okay? So that's how much this culture of rivalry is considered essential to what the Luftwaffe does so that at the decisive air battle of World War II, Goering deliberately takes one of his best performing pilots it's out of the line just to sort of keep the rivalry and the competition fair.
0: That second story particularly will be counter to what I mentioned because there it is not that the performance of the other triggers your effort or risk-taking or whatever but instead that you want the other one to do worse which will go counter to the sacrifice or offering in the religion dimension. Anything that you want to add that
1: we fail to mention? Uh, one thing is worth saying, it should go without saying, but just because we sort of talk about victories and so forth, we're not there to glorify what the German Air Force did in World War Two. So they clearly served a genocidal regime, while many of them claimed in their memoirs that they had no idea what was going on in terms of uh, genocide and so forth. That's clearly wrong based on everything we know. So, you know, we make no attempt to glorify the military deeds of people serving an evil regime. We're just interested in the incentives and psychological mechanisms underlying their activities.
0: Of course. Yes. Thank you, Joachim, for coming to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Jordi, for having me.
0: Please visit our website, thevisibleham.uk, for links to any other papers that we may have mentioned. Introductory music and logo by Tana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.